Welcome back, folks, to another edition of the Road Dogs Podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin, co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, why don't you go ahead and say hi to the folks out there? We're all storytellers in the movie business. That's what we do. We play make-believe, and when we do it well, we make you believe. Matthew McConaughey, Greenlights, page 264. Good stuff, good stuff. Joining us today, uh, two-time Josh Brady champion, at wide margin, ladies and gentlemen, back once again, long-time listener, friend of the show, Devin. Everybody, give a round of applause, Devin. Hi. Hello. Uh, my mic's not even picking up my claps. Wow, that's embarrassing. <laughs> Boo. That's okay. That's okay. Now, Devin, how do you feel about, like, your your title now? It's just, like, you're just the champion of Josh Brady. Two time. Yeah, yeah, you know, if I was going to choose to be the champion of anything, it wouldn't be that, but that's okay. <laughs> so what's your favorite. go-to, like, I'm going to be the champion? I don't know. We don't choose our legacy. I'll say that much. Mm. That is a fantastic point. The man's wow. always coming in here deep and, and metatextual. I love it. Uh, folks, today we'll be discussing 2011's Drive, directed by Nicholas Windig Refn. Uh, yeah, movie that kind of, like, came out of nowhere. It's been constantly imitated, never duplicated. Launched a whole entire uh, internet community, in my opinion, which we'll most certainly get into later, which, for better or for worse, whichever side you stand on. It's for the worst. <laughs> Unquestionably, uh, it's just for the worst. Uh, you know, but I, I kind of, I guess I, uh, I need to take the backseat and, and leave this one up to our, our uh, new co-host here. Devin, why did you choose this movie? Um, I chose this movie because I like it a lot. <laughs> More than Hellraiser 3? Uh, I think this movie personally is a little better than Hellraiser 3. I think it's a close, it's a close, it's almost like 1A, 1B. Yeah, like, I, it's, it, they're tied, but I think I'd have to go with this to kind of put it Devin's Mount Rushmore, it's, um, it's Citizen Kane, Hellraiser 3, Texas Chainsaw, The Next Generation, and then finally fourth is Drive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a sentence to say. Just an absurd thing to... to uh. So when did you first see this movie, Devin? Like, why, why do you think you love it so much? Why are we here? Um, you know, the, the first time I saw this movie, I was uh, laying on my mom's couch because they didn't have a bed for me at the time. Uh, and I was laying there. And I was looking for a movie to watch, and I had heard about this movie. And so I watched it on uh, my mom's living room TV while everyone was asleep. And this is one of those movies that is so, like, the dialogue is so soft. And I had to, like, turn the, I had to crank it up. And then the next scene would be a car going, like, Vroom! and my mom would come out of her room and be like, turn this down. <laughs> We're trying to sleep. I don't know. Why I think does I was he seem like, like a forty-five-year-old like man with a like mortgage that he's really upset about? Well, because I don't sound like a woman, Josh. Oh. I can't. I can't. <laughs> can't. I have a hard time impersonating women because I don't sound like one. That's fair. <laughs> you got me there. What impression did it leave on you? Like, how old were you at this point? Uh, I feel like I'm. Might have been like fourteen, maybe. Yeah. Oh, you came to this late. Yeah. 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 Makes me feel so old. (laughs) (laughs) When did you first see this movie, Nick? I also was late to the party. Like, this came out in 2011. I probably saw it like two or three years later. 
Um, I probably saw the movies that were ripping it off before I actually saw <laughs> the movie Drive itself, which is kind of a little little ass backwards. But yeah, I've always been a fan of Reffin's work. Um, he's an interesting guy. I guess we can kind of get into this now. Um, I just he he is uh, colorblind, so his palettes tend to be very saturated with neons and like bright colors, which is just kind of fun to look at from the, the beginning. Uh, but I feel like that's kind of hit or miss. You know, he's really divisive. I might have used this kind of like uh, allegory before on the show, but I look at Nicholas Winding Refn almost like The Doors, the band. You know, there's nobody who like halfway in and halfway out on The Doors. It's kind of one of those bands you either like or you don't like. And I find that his work is kind of the same way. It's either, it kind of goes through the whole critical cycle of like, is this like the best thing of the past 30 years? This is trash to like this holds up 11 years later like it's it's very strange the kind of like critical anal analysis uh around him but you can never question his like commitment to his art um there's a fascinating documentary about nicholas winding refn going bankrupt making the pusher trilogy uh which is a really cool trilogy um and you know his wife made a documentary about <laughs> him basically relocating their whole family to go shoot only god forgives uh so he is somebody who goes absolutely nuts for the craft uh, but I do understand the pushback and why he's so divisive as a director. So like the Doors, there's a whole community of people that are just deranged that are fans. So this is just a great <laughs> little analogy there, Nick. This is wonderful. <laughs> I saw Drive, boy, I want to say 2013, 2014. It was on Netflix. That's how like early I saw Drive. Is that where you saw it, Devin? Um, I don't know. I feel like I must have rented it, but I don't know. Yeah, God, this this whole thing is making me feel old. Jesus. Um, but I saw it on Netflix, and I remember seeing like the trailer for it, and I was intrigued. And I was like, ooh, Ryan Gosling. I like Ryan Gosling. He's cool. He's a funny guy. You know, I, I thought of him as the notebook guy, but I, I knew who he was. And I was like, this looks different. So I, I watched it with a friend, and I was like, holy God, what is this? <laughs> and I just like the visceral feeling when you watch this movie for the first time, and when you watch him get stabbed in the very end. And when he's putting on the mask and he drives Nino off the road, there's this like, oh my God, like feeling that this movie really generated with you, especially when you're a younger person, that is still kind of there for me. When I went back to this, I was like, this is just baller. Like, there's not a whole lot of like, there's a lot of nuance here with the story. But for the most part, it's action set pieces are just like firing on all cylinders. And I don't know, this movie kind of changed my life, to be honest with you guys. Like, <laughs> You laugh, but like this was one of the first movies that Devin and I really bonded over because we would be in high school and we would talk about movies in German class and it was all like very humdrum. And then we get to drive. And when we started talking about that, I remember thinking in my head, like, man, Devin knows his movies, movies. Like, it's not just like, oh, I like Tropic Thunder. Why are you shaking your head? <laughs> that, that was me gaslighting you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> This whole friendship has been a gaslight. <laughs> no, he's just trying to play it cool and sell himself short. And I like how I'm like, yeah, this movie changed my life because it made me friends with Devin. And he's just like, no, nah, I knew nothing of what you're talking about. This is yeah, I've actually life. never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> but I recognize that Devin, and I don't want to like make it sound like we're snobs, but like he wasn't into the same movies that like a lot of our other friends were into. And that made me like, oh, this is a cool guy. And so we really bonded over that, and we would just talk about it for a while. But on a more like, I don't want to say professional level, 
but this is one of the first movies that I became like interested, interested in where like I would rewatch clips on YouTube all the time and mm-hmm. I would think about it and I would make the car in GTA five. And I saw a video when I had to be, I don't know, 13, 14, whatever that analyzed this movie. And I'm going to say his name. If you want me to cut it up, Nick, I will. Chris Stuckman. He made a video called analyzing drive. It's 20 minutes. And it basically does what you know the title suggests. And when I watched him explain how Refn and the script like convey meaning through all these things, it opened my eyes to what a movie kind of can be in a real way. Because when you're my age back then, I didn't really think of movies as like, oh, look at the lighting in this scene or what it's trying to say about the people and the characters. But that video explained this to me in such a way that I was like, oh my God, you could do all that much with where you put the camera, what lighting you have, where the characters are just positioned in a scene. And you can convey meaning with metaphors and analogies and like the scorpion and the frog. And that blew my mind. And it said to me like, hey, all that stuff you don't want to listen to in English class, it translates to movies. You just don't know it. And it made me start to seriously critically think about movies and the way I view stuff after that. So yeah, Drive is like a very important movie to me that I figured out this week. It's a great example of, of everything you just said about, I'll go back and watch a movie two, three times for the plot of a movie. There's a bunch of movies about guys who drive cars and fall in love with women. It's all about the story. That's why you keep coming back to this movie. It's the story. It's the hidden little subtextual things about the jacket and its context as far as the Scorpion and the Frog and the fable you just mentioned. It's the cinematography. It's the lighting. Like, you know, I, I just rewatched this on a plane was the last time I'd seen it, actually coming back from hanging out with you guys. And man, you know, half the time you watch a movie on a plane, you probably make it through an hour, hour and 15 minutes, and then it's nap time. But I watch this thing from start to finish. Like, it's just, I'm I'm constantly finding new things, like, every time I go back to watch this. Because the first time I got, I watched this, I didn't get it. It, I was totally lost. I didn't understand why everybody loved it. I didn't understand what was going on, you know, in the movie. I didn't really understand the choices Gosling was making. Like, as time went on, like, you know second or third viewing probably a lot of things started to unlock but you know there's a there's a reason i went back to it right it wasn't because i didn't like it it was because i wanted to understand it see that's so true because when Devin and i watched this again we were both like wait did he just move into this apartment complex and then you start to pick apart oh what does that mean does that mean he's moving around all the time what does that say about him if like he's an la lifer for the most part and he's just bouncing around all these apartments, and it informs so much, and you can kind of pick up on these little things now that time has gone by, and you can just rewatch it whenever you want. Um, so this brings us to like the kind of tricky question of trials. What is this movie's legacy, do you guys feel? Do you think of it more as the career starter that it kind of became for Oscar <laughs> Isaac and then the career revival for Ryan Gosling? Do you think it's more of the Internet's um, favorite literally me movie? Um, <laughs> like, what do you think in 10 years or just now, now that we're at, I think, 12 years on drive or 11, what is it remembered for to you? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think, uh, I think it, it, part of the legacy is definitely that, like, I don't, you know, I know we're going to talk about it later, but like that incel thing for sure. But it's like, that's like the simple way of looking at it. I think it's more of like, a, I think culturally, you know, like where we're moving is like, I think a lot of dudes end up kind of feeling 
like lonely or like they they relate to like a character like this, you know. Um, and it's just because of like I think you know there's reasons for that that obviously have nothing to do with movies, but like I think it's just that um, there was there isn't really a character like that except like Travis, uh, you know, Travis Bickle. Yeah, Travis Bickle. Mm. That you know, like it's kind of a a niche that really kind of explodes at the later half of this decade. I agree. I totally agree. I felt, you know, Josh, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I felt thief this watch. Yeah, baby. Way more than I ever had watching it. I don't know. I mean, and we can go over that. I had like, you know, literal notes. Why the one word title score the way driver speaks the, the way that he can't have what he wants on a philosophical level. Um, you know, the filming locations, all of that stuff to me, I, I really felt thief this time around. Gee, that's a great point. I want to talk about this at some point, but this movie is like Michael Mann and like the color neon pink had a baby because it's European cinema. It's European cinema meets Michael Mann meets the color pink. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Devin, you can relate to this with Heat because you haven't seen Thief, but when you think about Neil and Heat and Driver, I was kind of startled by how much they're kind of alike. Both mm. of them are very like nuanced and quiet. Both of them have a strict code for Driver. It's like, look, I'm your driver. I'll give you five minutes. That's it. I'm, that's all I'm giving you. With Neil, it's the, if you see the hero in the corner, 30 seconds, he repeats it all the time in the movie. Right. Absolutely. Yes, the absolutes. There's this yearning for something else that I think we see with Neil and Driver of something greater where Neil, you know, wants to take the bank score, but he's really more concerned about Edie until that kind of clashes and Style Driver wants to be with, you know, Irene. So I was kind of struck by that too this time around. I was like, boy, this is really just Thief and, and Heat and, and Pink. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, obviously the location of Los Angeles too. Um, I know Thief takes place in Chicago, but Heat takes place in LA. Um, and I, one thing I really appreciate about Drive the movie too is, you know, None of it is like the gloss. It has all the glossiness. It has the true thing that is underneath that glossiness and what people go to Hollywood for and the dream and the fantasy. But the reality is it's strip malls and, you know, low-level mobsters. Nino's Pizza Place. Exactly. Slash people's, you know, wrists with knives and guys who get their legs broken and try to make race cars to make a quick buck. It's, It's not this glitz and glamour people fall in love with and i know that gosling had mentioned that driver's psyche is kind of that of somebody who had fallen in love with characters of movies too much i think you can insinuate a lot of that through his dress as kind of like a james dean style with that and the way he drives you know cars but um yeah it just like it completely subverts that idea of this is the super fun fast lane lifestyle even the chase scenes are really kind of subdued but they all feel great in the sense that something wrong could happen. Somebody really could get hurt. It's all dangerous. And I think hmm. that is definitely true. And Devin, I'm curious what your opinion is on this. One of the things I could have took away from like reexamining drive 10 years later or 11, it's one of the like real, I would say auteur, like real interesting indie movies that I think 90% of people in our generation have seen. Like I know so many people that we went to school with who were like, yeah, I've seen drive. And, like, people you would never think are like, yeah, man, I love Drive. Like, my roommate <laughs> in college loves Drive. Like, I'm sure some of your roommates love Drive. And it's they have no business or they never really go into, like, this type of subgenre either. Well, it's interesting you say that because this is actually, like, one of the movies I go to to show people that, like, aren't too familiar with movies. Like, they, this mm-hmm. is, like, the movie they've never seen. 
but I feel like I don't know. I I think it's the definitely the sort of thing where like if you're in our generation and you like movies, like you genuinely like oh like I go see the new like critically acclaimed whatever, like you've you've seen this movie. I think. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you guys too, because like there obviously is like an age discrepancy between us. I missed the boat on this movie when it first came out. It's two years late. I vaguely understand this whole like incel talk and stuff like that, and we can get into this later. I know we're kind of all over the place talking about a bunch of stuff, and I get the the literally me joke of the Joker driver and things like that. But uh, I guess I just like. I, I don't have a strong enough internet presence to understand fully what all that entails. But we can unpack that later. I was going to say, Devin, how do we explain that? But we'll do that later. Um, I yeah. think I could do it. I think I could do it. Okay. So you're also going to have to do something else now, Devin. Okay. You have to explain drive in 60 seconds. Oh, Jesus. All right. No, this should be easy. This should be easy. Do you do the timer you do it on Hellraiser 3. Yeah. When does the timer start? When does the timer start? Uh, I got it right now. Whenever you're ready, you tell me. All right, all right. Uh, hit it. Going. Okay, so the driver, he he uh, he's a getaway driver. Uh, he does a little heist with these two dudes, whatever. That's like just to start the story. And then he moves into this LA apartment. There's this girl that he doesn't really have a connection with, but he likes to think he does. And she has a kid. They hang out. They drive around. He has a boss too, and he's a little scum lord. And he like kind of sets up these little heists for him and shit. Um, 35 seconds oh my god and so the 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 girl the girl neighbor her husband's in jail he comes back and he's like oh you've been hanging out with my girl like you like that's kind of weird dude he's like whatever like yeah kind of <laughs> <laughs> um, he gets beat up by these loan sharks the driver helps him uh because he does the heists right 15 he seconds him, he helps him do a heist the the, the husband dies he, he, get, he gets killed in the heist it turns out it's this whole plot that's connected to the dude that helps him set up the heist in the mechanic shop and then Five, everybody dies four, everybody dies three. except except the, except the girl next door and the driver and the kid they all live you went over <laughs> i think you might have gotten like 56 minutes of that movie but that was great <laughs> <laughs> that was like Nick's Patrice la- like two weeks ago with Skyfall, where you kind of spent a little too much time. Like, well, you those yeah. Shannon and like um, Irene. You need all the players. The problem, is, the problem is, you get hung up on the opening with the sixty seconds. You get too enamored with the beginning. You gotta learn, you know, this is more. Some would say the the yeah. star is the most important. Some would. Some would. Some would but not. Now, when you're trying to recap a movie in sixty seconds. Yeah. That's all you have. You, you should like spend about five seconds. Driver does a heist, and then move on. But you know, I appreciate the effort. Hey, listen. At least we know he doesn't need a blood transfusion with that first line he came out with. You know, I thought he was a little anemic to start the show. So at least, at least we know he's alive. Devin has a little IV right now, just pumping blood into his veins. He's just waking like, up as we go. He's like Driver in the last scene of this movie, just sitting there. You just don't know. <laughs> a real hero just came through his headphones. I'm tie tie guys. I'm a little tie tie. You're doing great. We, we appreciate you. I'm just joking. Um, we also have to appreciate James Salas, who wrote the novel Drive is Based Off, which came out in 2005. Um, I read this book in preparation for the show. You got it in your hand right now. Oh, and I do. You got it in your hand right now. It's got a great cover. Uh, it is a great cover. I, I talked to Devin. There was a couple I was looking at, and I was like, what do you think about the pink? And he was like, do that. So yeah, I did. But, I got yeah, pink. You got you to gotta buy that one. To go with that one. I mean, when it's drive it, you kind of have to. I'm glad it's it's on my shelf now. It is a nice little like, hey, drive, but it's also not a good book, is what I'm gonna say. Hmm. Your movie than book? Oh yeah, 
not even close. We'll get into the differences later. So, but yes, the the book is very very different and just kind of like jabbily thrown together. It feels like this was written in a weekend, and <laughs> um, I don't know how this. Like we talked about how adaptation. I don't know how that was made into a movie. I feel this way about Drive. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, nonetheless, you received favorable reviews, one of which caught the attention of producers Adam Platt and Adam Siegel, who auctioned the novel her film. The character of the driver intrigued Platt, who saw him as a man with, that, with a purpose. He was very good at one thing and made no apologies for it, very much like, you know, Michael Mann characters. The character reminded him of characters typically portrayed by Cassie McQueen or Clint Eastwood. That is another shared DNA of this movie that I think is absolutely mm. there. The man with no name. Dirty Harry. I think there's a lot of parallels between Driver and the very, very old school neo noirs. I think there's a parallel, but I think that um, there is a dy- dynamic range that he has that they don't. I really enjoy some of those Clint Eastwood movies. Hell, even up to Unforgiving, he is or Unforgiven. He is just a bloodthirsty killer who like might have less lines than Driver in this movie combined through the Dollars trilogy. To be honest. Clint Eastwood's just, like, gruff, angry, and, like, violent is basically his yes. characters in majority of those movies. Yes, there is a alien observational-like quality to Driver that is, like, somehow soft and tender and also scary at the same time, which we'll get yes. into later. Yeah. Uh, for Hussein Amini, the screenwriter, adapting Drive was a challenge. Unlike the film, the novel features flashbacks and flash-forwards that split the time between Los Angeles and Arizona. This is where we're going to talk about the book a little bit and the differences and this is the big one. In the novel, the heist was standard is completely separate from the Bernie slash Nino plotline. In the novel, a driver's job with standard comes much earlier in his criminal career, goes awry, standard still dies. It's all hunky-dory. He, he and Irene hook up. Um, but then this is the plot twist that, uh, Nick, you don't know about, but Devin does because I texted him. Irene gets shot in the face and is killed. I wonder if that's like the Blanche thing. Well, because she dies too. She dies too. Oh, wow. Huh. I mean, you can't you can't do that. This man is like already so devoid of anything. <laughs> you, you, you have to you have to let him have one thing. Yeah, is the book pretty brief? The book is 158 pages. Yes. Why is he in Arizona? We'll get into that in a second. <laughs> but Driver and Irina is the girl's name in the book. In the book, she's a Hispanic woman. They changed that for the movie because Carrie Mulligan's Carrie Mulligan, regardless. Uh, she and Driver are bonding on uh, one page after Standard dies and having a glass of wine. She's now a nurse. And then she gets shot in the head by like a stray bullet from a gangbang like fight, and she's dead. And, that's that's um, so lazy. That is so <laughs> lazy. Also on the same page. The same page. <laughs> no, honestly, like this book would be like, he drove away. And that's like, oh, there's our action scene for the, the chapter. Great, wonderful stuff. And talked off Mike about that. That's a literary tool that I don't mind in novels when it is done through the perspective of a character, a la Libra, something like that. It kind of draws you into the, the book a little bit more. It feels almost like a journalistic quality to it. But that book is written in the third person, if I'm not mistaken, because I think you said that, right? Yes, Drive also changes perspectives a lot. There will be a little section with Bernie where we're in Bernie's head. There's a section with a guy named Doc, who is not in the movie for, for good reason. Uh, it's very, very jumping and uh, sounds overcrowded and lazy (laughs) (laughs) go off on james house a little bit more while i look for this no i i I don't want to go off because i love this movie and i'm glad it it spurned that but i mean have that happen on the same page 
is just absolutely absurd. That's just lazy writing. So, so just just for clarification, chapter eighteen starts for a long time after Stan's death. He didn't take on any more jobs. It goes on to for the rest of the page how him and Irene bonded, or Irina bonded with Benicio. He took care of them. He'd be home to take them from school. And by the end of page seventy, halfway like a quarter through page seventy, the very next page, she's just dead. Wow. And even that opening, he didn't take on any like jobs. Like, you know, I mean, just remove that. I didn't take on any jobs. Like we're already more intimate. Like the drive is such an intimate like character study. I, I just seems so detached. Anyways, let's I don't care about this book enough. Let's talk about the movie. <laughs> well, one last thing is that Driver does not know Bernie and Nino before he's entangled with their dealing in the book. He gets caught in the web while in Arizona on another job. Goes back to L.A. where Bernie and Nino also are. I Maybe I have that part confused because I'm like half reading this now. I'm like, I just want to get through this. Um, and the other big distinction is that Driver is far more like personable in the book. He has some quips. He goes drinking with a screenwriter and standard. He has an agent. And he comes off as a pretty normal dude who can just like slaughter people on the like snap of the th- finger. Um <laughs> He's a man of few words, but he's still given a backstory, something we'll get into later, and far more of a personality. Uh, don't read the book Drive if you like the movie Drive. They're they're very, very different. I'm a little confused how one translated to the other, but hey. Some of that stuff would have been fun. You know, I, I, I would have been cool with a <laughs> an awkward exchange with an agent or something like that. Some of that stuff could have been cool, but I think this is this is a really lean hour and 40 minutes, so that probably would have bogged it down. Did you ever think about reading the book? Because you're obviously the biggest fan of this movie. Um, no. <laughs> no I, I definitely, Man, a few words today. I love yeah, it. Yeah. I know. He's really just embodying the driver mentality today. Yeah. I'm doing an interview with David Chase. <laughs> I should have came with my Scorpion jacket. Um, <laughs> no, no. I don't know. I knew, that, I knew it existed, but I think I just read that like they were like, don't read this. So I just went from yeah. there. Yeah. Um, regardless of the book, Drive the Movie was announced in early 2008 with Neil Marshall set to direct what he described an L.A. set action mystery. For those unaware, uh, Devin and Nick, Marshall came out the gates hot with a couple movies, but the last major movie he made was 2019's Hellboy. So, well, hey, That's tough. Yeah, it's real tough. And I, and, you know, <laughs> as a comic book nerd, I, I love Hellboy in the BPRD series. Uh, that movie is borderline unwatchable. The big thing, this is what I teased Devin when I was doing research. Drive didn't just have her director. It had a star. Devin, I want you to guess who they, they were going to have play Driver. I'm curious who you come up with. Uh, well, there's a lot of options, you know. There is. It's 2008. Oh, geez. I mean, <laughs> maybe they had Gary Busey on the line. <laughs> to save the driver. What do you do? I drive. I, that's all I do. I drive. I drive. Drive fast. <laughs> like a mechanical tiger. I thought that was a good guess. Because <laughs> he's blonde and kind of tall like Ryan Gosling. Yeah. What about, uh, what about um, uh, give, me, give me Keanu Reeves. Wow, I drive. I mean. <laughs> the answer is Hugh Jackman was going to play driver. Oh, my God. That would have been yeah. absurd. <laughs> yes. Um, Jackman was cast as set to play driver with the film position as a starring vehicle for him. Do you think he could have pulled this off at all? Either of you? I think he could have pulled off the role. I just think it would have taken something away from the character. I think what makes 
on Gosling so great in this role um, is he's in good shape and he's physical, but he's not big and he's not intimidating. So his violence feels so much more rageful and unhinged. It feels like it comes from a place of like, like a blackout more. Whereas Hugh Jackman feel like is too well-versed in action movies and this is kind of the problem I have with Brian Cranston, too, is I also don't know if I could separate Hugh Jackman from this movie as just not being Hugh Jackman. Mm-hmm. Devin, what do you think? I think it would lose a little bit of the, like, internet kind of culture that, you know, we keep referring to if you have Hugh Jackman because something about Ryan Gosling in this movie gives that the, the like, thing that people latch onto with it where it's like, yeah, like you said, he's not super muscular. You know, he's just like he has a pretty normal fit build, and he—I don't know. There's, there's something about his face that has that sad depression <laughs> vibe with it. You know, I think what gives Gosling the edge with this is that he's younger. First of all, Hugh Jackman would have been 43 playing Driver. <laughs> yeah, Gosling that's true. 31. But the other thing that really does it for me, I think, is that before the Gray Man, Gosling hadn't really done action. Or really action anything. He was doing like indies with Half Nelson and Blue Valentine. He was doing a couple comedies here and there. He was sprinkling it through. So when you see him, whether it's before or after Drive came out, and he's doing all these things, it's very like visceral, like, oh my God, like this dude just stomped this man's head in until it was gone. Whereas Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, like an X2 in 2005, he's just chomping people to bits. There's not that like desensitization to that violence. And Jackman would have been really buff because this was presumably going to be filmed after X-Men Origins Wolverine. So he would have been just like a shredded beefcake. Yeah, I don't think it works. And I think that's another thing, too. He took the words right out of my mouth as he'd be too old. Yeah. 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 I think he could have pulled off a role like this, but I don't think it could have been this role. I think he has to be he has to be in the moment of like a 43 year old like I don't know I don't really think this movie worked on a lot of levels I haven't seen it but like um clean with Adrian Brody I think something like that is is like kind of closer to that for Hugh Jackman at that point Yeah Uh luckily by November 2010 both Marshall and Jackman exited the film leaving out that a director and its bankable action star Shortly after the producer Platt contacted Ryan Gosling here comes the gods baby Platt has said that he has a list of actors he respects and wants to work with. Near the top of that list was Ryan Gosling. So, like we kind of hinted at, this brings us to where Gosling was in, in 2011. Prior to Drive, he'd shifted his far more toward indie movies. He made Boo Valentine in 2010, Wars and the Real Girl in 2007, one of my favorites, and Half Nelson in 2006, the latter of which earned him an Oscar nomination. Why are you rolling your eyes at me? I mean, Lars and the Real Girl is a good movie, but I don't know why. But it's, oh. it's nowhere near than something like I'm calling it a favorite. But <laughs> I'm calling it like my personal. Might be the worst out of that little indie trilogy right there of great roles. But hey, that's I mean, just me. Okay, Jesus. Uh, Nick, why do you think Gosling was attracted to Drive? He could change a pace. I think that he was probably worried about getting typecasted. Um, I also think that he's... While I enjoy him in this movie with the, like, let's be honest, he's smoky and he's sexy throughout this whole entire movie. There's no doubt about yeah. it. it. It's just, he's, he's walking sex. Like I enjoy his like steamy silence and all that stuff, but I would like to see him be funny more often. Um, 
I think he he's somebody who takes like the craft of acting very seriously and all that stuff and the roles he chooses very seriously. But he's also extremely funny. Like we did the Nice Guys podcast, and I went back and watched the Nice Guys again after we did the podcast, just to like go back and watch some Ryan Gosling bits and laugh a little bit. <laughs> um, so I think that for him it was really kind of a change of pace and maybe a curveball to getting typecasted because if you look at Lars and the real girl half Nelson um I'm sorry I forgot the other one you said too uh, blue Valentine Valentine they they all kind of had some have some shared DNA of fractured middle America men East Coast men so Devin do you remember I don't know like maybe this is me stretching but I feel like Ryan Gosling was like a big name growing up for us of like the teenage years of like oh yeah like Ryan Gosling like everyone kind of knew who he was yeah, I, I mean, probably like high school time. Yeah, that's uh, not not so much like earlier than that because I feel like that. Five. <laughs> At I five feel... years old, we're like we love notebook. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I do remember it always kind of being like one of those debates of like, ooh, the hottest guy, like, and he was oh, definitely yeah. like thrown in there. So yeah, I would say that's true. I think this movie has a very interesting change in his career. And we're not going to do Decade Decided with Gosling because we already did it with the nice guys. Go back and listen to it. But I do think it really does shift where he goes from this. It really launches him into that mainstream kind of media in a much larger way where it gives him a complicated role while also giving him like an actual like action role that people would just go see. Like Tribe made $80 million. Like that's a really good chunk of change for, for 2011. And for a movie that costs $15 million to make. Yes, wow. exactly. And that's helped because Crazy Stupid Love came out the same year as of the Ides of March where he's next to Clooney. But I feel like this movie was like the first like kind of coming out party for Gosling to like the most people in the like the movie going world. Probably, which is also strange too, right? Because like we've said, this is like <laughs> while while we all enjoy it, a lot of people watch this for the action and the fact that it's a crime movie. Really, an art house movie, if you think about it, and and, really and across is. the board, <laughs> I mean, all its themes are quite subtly placed. Um, half of the story is told through sound, which is a shame that that's the only Oscar nomination it got. I mean, it's a it's a pretty obtuse movie on on face value. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two days after reading the script, Gosling contacted Platt and said, "Like, yo, I'm interested in this. Let's make it happen." When reading the script, Gosling described his approach as a Devon. This is the quote that I think is going to make you a little excited here in the nether regions. <laughs> okay. He said, the only way to make sense of this is that this is a guy that's seen too many movies and he started to confuse his life for a film. He's lost the mythology of Hollywood and he's become an amalgamation of all the characters he admires. Yeah, yeah. Well, that and that's, exa- that's exactly what I'm saying. No, because we've talked off air about this, about how like, okay this incel culture thing like that's exactly my point like i think that's the type of person that relates to this movie too much is that mm-hmm. what he's describing i think another part of that is that driver as much as i root for him and i like him he's an unhinged individual that frames himself as the hero of the story whether he's a good hero or a bad hero that's up for debate but he makes himself the hero of like i'm saving irene when, like, he could have just, like, tackled that guy in the elevator and Irene could have gotten away, but instead he stomps his face in because he's a psychopath. You know, like, that's who Driver is at his core, not, like, the soft, sensitive guy who also plays music and is like, oh, look at these 
at these LA canals, you know. <laughs> it's it's 40 minutes. It's it's 40 minutes when his character completely shifts. It's that scene at the diner because I really think if you watch this movie with a close eye and we can talk about this later. Is and they do a great job with the blocking too. All those scenes besides them being in the car. Benicio and Irene are close together. Driver is far away and observing them. He is an outsider. He knows that that is something unattain- unobtainable to him. But it, we, we view that through a sad and an endearing lens. And then it changes when he goes to the diner. He tells that guy, shut up or I'll kick your teeth down your throat. The score gets kind of like it sounds like things are crackling in the back. It almost kind of sounds like glass breaking or somebody like running their nails on chalkboard. Like all these like great sounds of like indicate that like all that energy and all that like love that you saw that was being fostered can quite easily be switched into hate and violence and rage very fast. And I think that's like watching it this time around. That was the moment in the movie. I was like his character completely changes at the 40 minute mark in this movie. It's a great point because this is something Devin and I noticed of like that cool, like a real hero scene, as great as it is. At the end, Irina Benicio are throwing the rocks and drivers off to the side just watching them. Yeah. <laughs> and to, to go back to the diner scene, I think it's such a telling part in the script because throughout all that movie, Driver's in Control, he has rehearsed this little monologue about the five minutes. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's going to walk past the cops. He's going to do everything right. And Irene throws a curveball into his life. But when Standard comes back, which kind of incites that whole, like, I'll keep your teeth down your throat thing, he no longer has control over, like, when he can see Irene, what they're going to do, if he can hang out with Benicio and Irene. He's just up to fate again. And I think a personality like him loses it at that thought because all of a sudden, even the drive stuff, he plans out these routes, he does all these things, and now nothing is planned anymore. Hmm. Yeah. The, the lack of control. Yeah. That's a great point too of, of standard coming home. And I would also like to say standard is the worst name for a character in the history of cinema. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we were saying that Devin and I, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's just terrible. Uh, Do better. Do better. His name's standard in the book too. And they make that awful joke of like, is there a premium Guzman around? And it's oh like, it's God. not funny guys. Surprised nobody makes a joke, especially being called drive. If they're like, Oh, what about your cousin automatic? <laughs> Once Ryan Gosling signed up, he found himself thrust into a position of power. The studio actually gave him the sign off on who would direct the movie. He was tasked with basically finding and picking the director, which brings us to Nicholas Winding Refn. Nick, we'll, we'll toss it to you here in a minute because you know about the Refn filmography more. Uh, prior to Drive, Winding Revan primarily worked in the Danish film industry. He'd made the crime drama Pusher trilogy, which Nick mentioned earlier. Uh, he introduced Mads Mikkelsen to the world through with that trilogy. But he had he'd only worked exclusively in Denmark prior to Drive, the only exception being Bronson in 2008, which is a knockout movie. Um, <laughs> that film received strong reviews and helped increase Winding Revan's portfolio. Valhalla Rising, another movie directed by him, won several awards at a film fest and propelled his name to the wider world. Devin, I want to ask you this first, because you're the biggest fan of this movie. What are your thoughts on Winding Ref, and not just like in this movie, but on the whole? I think this is the only movie I've seen from him, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, did, did you not know that? <laughs> no, I, I don't think that that's like, I don't think that that's like a knock. I don't, because I don't think none of his movies have really been ever readily available in the sense of like a wide release. He's a festival director. He's not somebody who gets a lot of big screens. 
And I also think his work is, like I've said, much like, I mean, we can go back and forth on the doors, but I know you're a big Bob Dylan fan. No. <laughs> oh. We'll gloss over that. We'll gloss over that. But anyways, like <laughs> in the sense of um, his, his work after this is pretty divisive. And he's also somebody who's not afraid to tell you that he loves his, his own movies. Uh, mm-hmm. Josh, I sent you a, a clip a couple days ago that is, is one of my favorites of, uh, you know, New Hollywood legend William Friedkin and uh, Nicholas Winding Refn chopping it up back and forth, where he goes on to call "Only God Forgives" a masterpiece. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen that movie, but that's uh, that's that's Not pretty 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 high praise for yourself. Yeah. Um, but I <laughs> somebody who I always enjoy. I think that people miss oh, miss the message a lot. Um, I'm probably one of the only people, one of the 10 people in the state of Colorado who decide to watch every episode of Too Old to Die Young on Amazon. You are. You are. <laughs> and I enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, I thought it was cool to see somebody take Miles Teller, who has like golden retriever energy, and completely strip that down and turn him into somebody who's a corrupt cop who, like, his main dialogue is spitting on the ground. Um, so he has a really cool sensibility of, like, kind of stripping down those men to their caveman sensibilities and the philosophical stuff of uh um Michael Mann, I just don't think he always pulls it off and his last few movies to me have kind of felt a little flat and redundant. But I'm always gonna be there to see where he's taking us. He's interesting at the very least. I think even his misses, which he's had a couple of, are at least like interesting concepts of it's not just like, oh he's gonna go make like a like another generic action movie. Like the Neon Demon and Only God Forgives are at least like interesting, and they're great to look at. Yes, but Nick, what what are the directors you see in Winding Reference work? Like, empty the notebook on me, baby. Let's hear it. So I definitely see Michael Mann. I see Martin Scorsese. I see Brian De Palma. Um, I definitely see some John Luc Godard, especially with the way he dresses people in Only God Forgives. Um, Devin's right now just like, who? What? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Those are probably some of the main ones that I see see primarily. Uh, But like I said, this movie a lot, I just, I was like, man, this feels a lot like Thief more so than I ever remember. I have to show you Thief at some point, Devin, I think. Yeah, no, please do. Please do. Yeah, that's mandatory. Mandatory watching. He reminds me of Derek C. C. Francais, or however you pronounce it in some ways. Of they're both very much these guys kind of on the fringes of like the movie making industry that I think have their hardcore devout fans, but for the most part they're kind of like widely ignored. And I'm curious yeah. where Ronnie Ruffin goes. He's got two options, really. Sorry. No, go ahead. We'll we'll just do this now. I mean, I don't. I, I'm just having so much fun talking about this movie and like. Oh, no, baby, go. So it's just one of those things to me. It's like he has two options, right? And we say this every week, and it kind of sucks. He's either going to make a, a really cool neon pink and green Marvel movie. He's going to be, <laughs> he's, or he's going to be making movies that come out at TIFF and con and Venice and get picked up for distribution. That's, that's unfortunately where these guys are getting relegated to. I think this week coming up is going to be a big test with avatar. I really don't care either way about that movie, but I mean, but I'm kind of the upcoming week. Yeah. Ooh. yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Or, or a week or two. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I live I live at a, close enough to an Alamo that I think it's coming out earlier, so I'm not 100% certain. Yeah, I'm sorry to throw you off. I was just like, wow, like I I don't I didn't even like recognize it. Either way, like it's just kind of a scary state of where movies are at, right? And we already are, are there. 
So I, I don't know. I to me, it's kind of like those are the two options for him. <laughs> yeah, uh, Gosling was part of the larger role that became a fan of his and said it had to be Nicholas. There was no other choice. When he first read the script, Wanya Refn thought the concept of a stuntman by day and getaway driver by night intrigued him more than the film's actual plot. This is uh, <laughs> might give Devin some flashbacks to high school. During Refn and Gosling's first meeting about the film, Refn was sick and high on cold medication. Gosling interpreted as a disinterest in the film, described as their bad date. Um, <laughs> so basically, like, they're at dinner, Devin, and Refn's just, like, high, essentially. And Gosling's like, hey, like, what, what did you think about Drive? You interested? You want to you work? And he's like, oh, I'm so sick. <laughs> Why not just, like, cancel cancel the date like and just be like hey i'm i'm terribly ill we'll meet back up like yo ryan goss i don't want to get you sick like let's just we'll just meet tomorrow would you cancel on ryan gosling yeah and that's the other thing too in in, in an industry where like yeah well we can meet two months from now because the next two months i'll be in miami shooting barbie like it doesn't really work like that they don't have the same life for us where like they wake up in the same bed every day so yeah they're probably like (laughs) time is valuable like Look, I go to Denmark in tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. That's not what people from Denmark sound like at all. It's awful. That was my girl Tom Parker impression, which we'll hear later on too. <laughs> Once the meeting was over, Ref revealed he doesn't drive and asked if Gosling could give him a lift. <laughs> the car ride was silent until Ario Speedwagon's I Can't Fight This Feeling Anymore. Refn began singing despite the fact he was high and said, this is it. It's a movie about a guy who drives around listening to music. This and is that's not how real, drive got made. There's no way that's real. Dude, I am dead serious. This is real. <laughs> he can't drive, and then I bet Ryan Gosling's like, I, I drive. Well, I mean, he's he's from he's from Denmark. That's yeah, true. They got that's, like horses and carriages. Well, I'm not saying that part isn't true. Just the he asked <laughs> Ryan Gosling to drive him, and then in the movie, Ryan Gosling says, "I drive." It's this incredibly funny you said that because Gosling says in interviews like he's he doesn't drive. He doesn't make a movie about driving. <laughs> It's really bold. I guess that explains why there isn't a lot of driving and drive. <laughs> it's not like Randy Wooden Ref was going to do the scene. I think that was budgetary constraints. I think, yeah, because that's yeah. one of my notes. I would have loved to have like one more like chase scene in this, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Regardless, Ref found his vision for drive and drive found its director. Gosling has since credited Ario Speedwagon for help making the movie, essentially. Thanks, Ario Speedwagon. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Next, we'll do what I call, man, these are some cool cats. Just like fun stuff I learned while I was doing research where I was like, ooh. Uh, this sounds like a dream for me. Locations for the movie were picked by Refn while Gosling drove him around Los Angeles at night. Could you imagine being in that car just like with the two of them, just like being boys looking like, oh, that looks cool. That got me a little choked up. Really? <laughs> <laughs> just the thought of that guy. Choked up or chubbed up? Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of both. What kind of emotions? <laughs> I think that's really cool. I think that's really cool. And I think this also like lends itself to the thing that we were talking about with Michael Mann DNA. All of these locations, like we said, are like strip malls or a nasty garage or an apartment complex. Like these aren't locations that a lot of people are probably choosing to film their movie at. Like it's very, it's very purposeful where this movie is filmed. It's the worst parts of LA. And I think that's extremely intentional. Like, we never see the Hollywood sign. We get a few helicopter shots of the city, but that's to show you how small a driver is within the midst and how much he's traveling. Exactly. Yep. 
the opening car chase scene was filmed primarily by reference within the car's actual interior. In an interview, he said he intended for the scene to emulate the feeling of a diver in an ocean of sharks. Pretty, <laughs> pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, drive is one of the first movies to use what's called the biscuit rig. Uh, essentially, it allows a stunt driver to steer a car above while the actual actor can just focus on driving. That said, Gosling did some stunts himself and rebuilt the 1973 Chevy Malibu using the film, taking it apart and putting it back together. Just a real dog. This is a Gosling guy. He's so cool. Just, yeah, dude. That's just another. And like, not only is that like cool, just another level of intelligence, which is just another level to make him more attractive than every other person on the face of the planet. <laughs> it's not I know you. Not. I know you love Blade Runner. Is Gosling one of your boys? Like, is he just like, you're just like, man, I wish that was, that was that guy. Like, I wish I could like hang out with him. Like, I wish I could watch movies with Ryan Gosling, you know? Like, mm. After seeing the cool. nice guys, I was like, I just want to be friends with this guy so badly. I don't think that that would go the way that you guys think it would go at all. <laughs> you don't think me and Ryan Gosling would be best friends? I think I'd be so no. nervous I'd pee my pants. <laughs> <laughs> you and... 10,000 other women in the world. I think that he can laugh at me. <laughs> Hi, Mr. Gosling. My name is Devin. I really. <laughs> I saw a video of Ryan Gosling breaking up a, fa- breaking up a fight in New York City. So I, I'm Whoa. sure he's a pretty. I'm sure he would get you another pair of pants before he would laugh at you. We'll he's see. the coolest guy because he's Canadian and, like, you know, he was a Mouseketeer. And he actually like grew up in the Bronx. Does. He does. <laughs> That's a great point. The accent and everything. Yes. Yeah. Like he's got these quippy little comebacks. He's like a little like, whoa. Like he's got this very like magnetic personality. It's like, dude, you are a mouseketeer, bro. Like, what's the crazy thing that happened to you? You're like, Mickey, please don't touch me. Like, Jesus. <laughs> Drive soundtrack was at one point number four on the iTunes sales chart. Its vinyl peaked at 30th on the US Billboard 200. I got a question. Hit me. You guys like the soundtrack? Yeah. You? Yeah. 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 I, do. Okay. I do a lot. I think there. Are, I think there's like probably like I, I, I could cherry pick a handful of good songs off of it. Well, there's only three songs actually used in this movie. I think uh, based on three or four, it's "Night Calls," um, the like song he listens to while he's at Nino's, and then "A Real Hero." And I think those are like the three main song songs. So, are you talking like the score or the soundtrack? Well, the soundtrack, the soundtrack, those three songs are great. The score is done by Cliff Martinez. The the score is really cool. I, I, I'm not a big fan of a, a real hero. I don't really like that song. Devin, is that well, okay? I'm 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 prejacking a little bit here. Don't prejack. Don't prejack. Don't don't. I got a new clip to send to our to send to our friend. <laughs> what separates Nicholas Reffin from other directors is he actually doesn't watch audition tapes. He just straight out refuses. Instead, he meets with actors and casts them on the spot if he feels they understand the material. Insane. It's like odd too. Yeah, I, I there's nothing about him that is conventional. Like I can't, I can't put one thing on it and be like, yeah, that's like a Nicholas Winding Refn thing. Like he also shoots films in chronological order, like from start to finish, which is Whoa. extremely hard to do. Yeah, and it's like you have to be a meticulous planner to even try. It's just he's well, very. He also thinks he's a masterpiece. So yeah, he's very, very eccentric and unique, to put it lightly. So Reffin literally cast Carrie Mulligan because his wife was like, "Hey, I saw her in a movie and I liked her," and he was like, "All right, well, let me meet with her." 
That's weird. Sounds almost like Devin's description of why he likes this movie and he picked it. <laughs> what can I say? What can I say? Maybe I did Are you sure with two girls? <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like this is not the movie to first show a girl, you know? This is not a date movie. No, it's movie. not a good first date movie. Yeah. No. I, this is like this is like four months in. If you're like, hey, uh, and, and like you have to act like you don't really like it that much. You have to be like, yeah, I, I remember seeing this once that I kind of liked it. Do you, you want to maybe just turn it on real quick? I know there's a poster on my wall, but I haven't seen it before. <laughs> That's <laughs> a bad – you both are wrong. That's the bad play. That's the bad play. You say you've never seen this movie. I don't know what happens in that movie, but I love Ryan Gosling. See, that's true. But then you have to feign ignorance for 140 minutes. You have to pretend not to get, to get so excited when he comes up on the screen and says stuff. <laughs> You're just like on the edge of your seat, like when Nightcall starts playing. You're just like, you sure you've never seen this before? No. When Nightcall starts playing, it'd be so hard for me to not go, oh, this is so cool. Like it, I'd have to. That opens up. That opens up if you're if you're if you're pliable here. It opens up another play. Halfway into the movie, you go, oh, I have seen this before. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what happens, but but I remember now. I have seen this. I was going to say the girl looks over Devish's mouth in the words of the dialogue. As <laughs> He's like, I drive. That's what I do. <laughs> right at the diner scene, you say, oh, I have seen this before. I actually have seen this before. Yeah. <laughs> guess what? I don't like Ryan Gosling. He's, he's kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> uh boy. As for the rest of the cast, uh, Refn wanted to cast Brian Cranston from the jump for the part of Shannon, in large part due to Breaking Bad. Uh, it's worth noting at this time that Brian Cranston was exploding by the time Drive came out. He made four movies in 2011. And it's because of this that Refn knew he had to go after Cranston hard. He called him after a meeting to discuss how he would approach the character of Shannon. The call moved Cranston so much that he just accepted the part on the spot. Other stuff, Albert Brooks and... Uh, uh, Ron Perlman kind of joined after the fact. Ron Perlman was like, oh my god, I get, I'm a Jew that wants to be an Italian? I love it. Let's do it. And that's how Ron Perlman joined the cast. I'd just like to say, I mean, we're probably, you know, almost an hour deep into the cast, probably less. Albert Brooks is f***ing amazing in this, and we haven't mentioned him Great. once. <laughs> He's like 65 at this point, probably, and this might be his career best role. <laughs> What is it about Bernie that you think, like, is this something you wish he had done earlier? Why hasn't he done this more? This is a question for you guys. I think it's a great blend. I'm sorry, Devin. I'll take the, do you want me to take this to start? Yeah, no, please seen, do. Please do. I've seen one or two more Al- Albert Brooks movies than you I, have. I think you probably have. <laughs> I think you, you may have. <laughs> I think what's great hey, about Devin's him. Devin's taxi driver, okay? He's is, he is good in that. I think yeah. what's great about him is is not only the range of like what we were talking about with John Goodman the other day of the ability to be funny, but to make funny scary. Like <laughs> I had in here the part where he walks in and says to driver, we've got a lot of money riding on this. We're a team. You just call me if we need anything ever. Nino, let's get the f- out of here. This place grosses me out. Like that whole <laughs> right there just has such a great like wave of emotions of like this killer who was silently threatening you to like, you know hilarity and that i just think works so well for the character and and honestly it's just a crazy performance i think there's a world where we could gladly give him the top of the colonel tom parker award and i'd be happy with it i'm almost okay with it just for like when he grabs the the what was it like the fork or like the the straw and just stabs into the guy's neck and like oh it just does it and then walks he's like you clean that up 
He also has like one of the greatest like come comeback quips in this movie too, where uh driver holds out his hand and says, My hands are dirty, and he says, Mine too. I just love that line. True, true. That's just a great work. Um yeah. yeah, I don't know. Like Brooks he actually shaved his eyebrows of his own volition. He was like, I just want to do that because it'll make me look scarier. And one your reference is like all right, I mean, sh- I, you can't really undo it now, so we're not going to like CGI eyebrows on you, so I guess we're just rolling with it. Driver grew 78.1 to $81.4 million worldwide. It was one of four wide releases that opened that weekend and came in second in the box office. Audience pulled by CinemaScore gave the film an average grade of C- minus on an A-plus to F scale. Lunacy, makes sense. even for 2011. Oh, I, I think it makes sense. Think about that time period. That was a era where movies were a little bit softer, and this movie's really, really br- violent and, and brutal. I also feel like yeah, it wasn't marketed very well. Like, that's I feel true. Like that too. If, you, if you watch too. the trailer, it kind of gives a way different vibe than what the actual movie is. Yes. It's like watching an Italian job trailer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you know the studio was sued for that exact reason? <laughs> oh, yeah. Really? This lady was like, I went to this movie expecting one thing, and then I see Ryan Gosling stomping a man's face, and I'm suing you for, like, misleading me. How, like, how wonderful it must be to be that ignorantly, like, self-absorbed that that is your biggest problem. I think you mean, how wonderful is it to be an American? It's true. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good, but it's joined the call, everybody. (laughs) I wish I could go back in time to the about Edge of Tomorrow so I could get more media for that movie and then make more people actually go see it, but uh, alas. Mm. Audience could have seen The Fallen alongside Drive. Contagion, The Help, very similar energies there. I don't know how she does it. Another, you know, akin movie to Drive. Straw Dogs, Rise of the Planet of the Apes and Warrior. Those last two bangers, by the way. Just just mm. gnarly stuff. I agree. Warrior is probably one of, the, one of the most underrated movies of this decade. So let's move on. We're an hour in. Let's move on to the fun stuff here. Can you guess how many lines of dialogue Ryan Gosling has in this movie? Nick, do you, have you spoiled this for yourself? Devin. Okay, good. Devin, I want, I want to hear your first... We'll do Price is Right rules. If you go over, you're out. You know, under, you're good. Uh, well, I was going to joke and say one, but I want to take this seriously. So You just made me spit. You just made me <laughs> like hawk a loogie. That one line is just like, yeah. <laughs> no, the one line is I drive. Drive. <laughs> I th- okay, all right. I'm gonna say, uh, I'm gonna say 20. 20 lines? <laughs> not that low. I'm gonna let you guess again. I'm gonna let him guess again. I can't. I can't have you. Know how many 20? That means you speak 20 different times in a movie. He does not speak 20 he times. He doesn't. He doesn't speak a lot, Josh. He does not speak. Yeah, a lot. but I know the answer. It's not even close to 20. I'm just gonna let you know for the sake of like entertainment here. Well, let's. Well, now if I say like a slightly uh, higher, twenty-one. Yeah, but am I gonna say fifty and embarrass myself again? I'm gonna say uh, if maybe this will help. I'm gonna say a hundred and twelve. Okay, Devin. I'm gonna say a hundred. Okay, Nick, I'm a little afraid you cheated. What? It's hundred sixteen. Let's go, baby! Wow. I did not cheat. Yeah. I swear to God. Nice. That's pretty it's good. Fun. From some online research, through the entire runtime of 100 minutes, there's barely a line a minute. He only says 891 words, turn it into 7.68 words per sentence. Oh, it says 891 <laughs> words. That's crazy. That's right. No, I've Imagine. been, I've, 
I've been in class breaking down scripts a lot recently, so I, I've like been like going one and one eighths of a page. So I've I've been like kind of looking at lines of dialogue recently, and I was thinking to myself that I was like, he might have under a hundred in this. It's not even that close, like honestly, of just like how little he says for the most part. Like I think honestly, the like I'm gonna bash your teeth down your throat is probably the longest like line of dialogue he has. It might be the it might be the five minute speech that that if you if, if you counted all that, yeah. I was going to say when he gets the money and he goes to Irene's store and he's all like frantic before the elevator. I feel like he talks a lot. That's true too. Yes, he does. Yeah. Uh, Second question. Is is Driver just Michael Myers' sex appeal and good taste in music? Because this dude's a psychopath. He gets shot in the arm and is like, no bueno. He gets stabbed in the gut. He's like, I just need five seconds. Let me turn on my jams. We're good. Let's go. With a shotgun shell, mind you. Or a piece of a shotgun shell. Yeah. He's just like, no, we're good. We see Shannon stitch him up, and then it's like, all right, let's go kill some more people. I guess, I guess the key's motivations, and his motivations are disguised as pure. It's up to us to decide, you know, morally where we land on that. Whereas Michael Myers is just like a tool of evil. That's true. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. I don't think he's, I don't think the driver is like the essence of evil, <laughs> you know? That's probably true. I don't think, and then and that's also not to say that I think what he does is right. Like right, I don't think right. I'm not condoning it, but like Actually, you know, that's exactly what you just said. You were like, you know what, Driver did nothing wrong. Nick just said he condones all of the actions of the driver in the movie Drive. Yeah, it's wow. very odd. <laughs> all right, what's the next section we got, Josh? Hot <laughs> Dogs Podcast. You're welcome back. Um, no, but it's kind of funny. We've we've been talking about this a lot. Of like, this guy's like Michael Myers in these movies. Who's like the who would be the heir to Michael Myers in movies? If like we had to pick one person from the movies we've watched, Anton Chigurh. Okay, that's probably true. That's a, that's, a, that's a really good pick. Um, if not that, uh, Sully from Monsters, Inc. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. We're picking movies that we, we've watched on the show. <laughs> we haven't watched No Country for Old Men on the show either. No, but I, that's why I'm saying well, we oh, watched oh, oh. We watch Monsters, Inc. Okay, okay, okay. All right, I'm just, I thought you were coming I'm going to go back. No, 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 it's my mess up. I made a mistake. Okay. I'm going to take W instead from Texas Chainsaw. <laughs> Just because I fucking hate him. <laughs> He's in the Hatfields of Haddonfield. He's just like, I'm going to draw a line on the sand right here, Mrs. Laurie Strode, and we'll stand out here all day. <laughs> oh, my God. I would hope the whole town of Haddonfield would just unload on him. <laughs> You know how, like, at the end of Halloween ends, like, they all gang up? I just want them to do that yes. while he's still alive and just, like, beat him around <laughs> in a circle. Put him into the meat grinder. Meat grinder while he's alive. While he's saying quotes. <laughs> this is one thing I kind of thought of this time around. Where do you guys feel like Driver came from? Devin told me he was Ohio, <laughs> which made me think, what does he assume about the people of Ohio? So I'm going to let him go first. Well, okay. So, yeah, I mean, that's my joke. Uh, that's my joke. I, that's not, if you're from Ohio and you're listening, yeah, I'm not saying that you're like the driver and drive. I don't condone his actions in any way. Not um, like Nick. Yeah, I'm not not like the other host of this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, now I don't know. I mean, you told me he's from, but like he goes to Arizona in the book. Maybe he's from Arizona. Maybe so he's from what Hawaii. do you feel like his backstory is? Not just like geogra- geographically. Like, what do you feel like? Because I have an answer in the book. But I want to hear, like, what do you guys interpret? Like, what made Driver become Driver? Um, I think 
And you, I think just like in any career, when you go into it with like great expectations, <clears throat> and that's kind of like the allure of Hollywood or, I mean, stunt work or whatever it may be, and then you see what it's really about and the people you work with on the daily basis, I think it's really quite impossible to not become jaded or maybe then become complicit to some of the lifestyle choices that the driver made. And then financially, it's expensive to live in Los Angeles, and I'm sure just like change it, doing oil changes for Shannon isn't cutting it. Like, and you know he's around Shannon all the time, and probably sees that you know he's got money coming in and out, more out than in. But um, it, it's it's tantalizing. He also has a skill. He, everybody, when somebody praises you for being so great at something, is like, dude, you're the best at this. Like, we can we could do something with this. It's, it's, That's what I've heard about us, our podcast. Honestly, it's just like people come up to me on the streets. And they're like, "Bro, like, say from who?" You know, like, <laughs> and then I'm like, "You subscribe?" They're like, "No," and I'm like, "Ah, Devin, where do you feel like what makes Driver tick, or where does?" Well, he you know what's so out? funny is like Nick's answer was so good, and I was just gonna You're say, just gonna I don't steal think, it? no, I don't think he's kissed a girl until he kisses Irene. That's all I know. <laughs> I mean, the vibe Ooh. he gives, I don't think. I don't even think he's held hands with a girl until he meets Irene. That's a really good point. Has the driver really ever? Has the driver ever really been loved? Like in, in all seriousness, has he ever been loved? Like you no, know, I think that's why he latches on to this to this girl so quickly. You know, he doesn't know what love not is. Just, yeah, and not just latches on, but like stomps a man's face in to protect her for it. I said this to you while we were watching, Devin. I do think that's like the first time. He, I don't think it's the first time he kissed a girl. I think he's too hot to have not kissed a girl before. Like, he's at a car. Mm, we, as a kid. See, we're trying, I'm trying to remove Ryan Gosling from the equation. Like, yes. Well, like, he's uh, still driver. I know, but it's like. That's for, us. Not, yeah, so that's, he, for us. Yeah, that's for us. That's for us, right? He's driver. Ryan Gosling is driver for us to get our asses <laughs> and our girlfriend's Ryan asses. Ryan Gosling belongs to us. <laughs> i think in the context of the movie though i feel like i don't know he like he kind of gives me the vibes of like kids we would like go to school with that like tried to like do things to seem cool you know and that's where True. it goes back to his quote that like ryan gosling said where it's like the character is like someone who's just seen movies and he's just trying to replicate what he's seen and not how reality works i think it's okay i'll add this caveat i think it's the first kiss has meant anything to him i think before that he's probably just like Meets a girl one night stand, maybe if that, if he can even like drum up the energy to have a conversation with her. Otherwise, he just doesn't bother. And Irene is the first person that actually makes him like want to be with someone. But this is a character study. There's an argument to be made that maybe she doesn't feel that way. I think the elevator scene when she walks away and the doors close, quite symbolic in a lot of ways of that. I think it's it it does have that kind of as much as I don't like this movie and I don't want to draw comparisons. Joker baby, the the Joker situation <laughs> of Zazie Beats relationship. It's just like same kind of thing where it's like, yeah, I don't know if this is something that is truly like I don't know if this is a two way street. I don't know if both people feel the same way. I think that's a good point, but this is the real answer from the book. At least whether you accept it or not is a different thing. But we know Driver's backstory in the book. Okay. We're going to get into this now. We are. Nine pages in, we find out where Driver comes from. <laughs> okay. Okay. So his, I'm just going to paraphrase here. His dad was a career criminal. Until Driver was 12, he would use Driver to like actually sneak into people's houses and steal stuff. He'd put him through like vents and grates and sort of stuff because he was really small. And then like every male protagonist in a book written by a white man, he magically shoots him to 6'2", and he's huge, and he's muscle. 
you know, like he's just he's just a Greek god. Um, it says once he got his growth, his father had a little use for him. His father basically abandons him, and then Driver's mother apparently and father didn't get along well. One night, uh, Driver's mother went after the old man with a butcher and bread knives, one in each fist, like a ninja in a red clad apron. She had one ear off and a wide red mouth drawn to the throat before he could set his coffee cup down. Driver watched, then went on eating his sandwich, spam and mint jelly on toast. That was the ex- about the extent of his mother's cooking. So his mom basically murders his dad and then covers it up, kind of, sort of. And Driver's just like, eh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so there's psychopathy in the blood. Yeah, I think what works best is like we've just spent the last couple minutes talking about where's the driver from where's the driver from what's his background i think what makes it so great is we don't know the answer to those questions yeah i think that's yeah. why his character works so well because we need to find that out on our own it's an open forum movie we have to find out that what happened in that world afterwards after that he goes to foster parents he at the age of 16 he he lived in like an attic all of his life uh, when he's with the foster parents from like 12 to 16, he's just living in this attic. Never really comes out. He's a real Harry Potter fan he took after. Um, he stole their car on his 16th birthday and just drove off and was like, hey, thank you for taking care of me. Like, seriously, thank you. But I got to go off. I'm stealing your car and like have a nice life. And that's about the extent of what we went for Driver. We lined, find out his mom's last name is Daily, but he never has a name throughout the book. It's still just Driver. He's identified as Driver and... uh it's a great, better decision for the movie not to tell you what driver comes from. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's much better to to leave all of that ambiguous stuff ambiguous. Kind of like how you you guys were like, did he just move to LA? Like, is he or did he just move to this apartment? We know he's been in LA for like five or six years because Shannon tells us. Yes. But like, there is like a, a, a mystique around him that I think adds so, another layout to the movie. It may not be just Mystique, because this is something Devin and I talked about, and I want to hear your take on this, Devin. Is Driver autistic? We talked about it with Benjamin Braddock, so I think it's only fair we bring it up here with Driver. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, there was a... Because I've seen this movie a lot of times now. Like, there's definitely, like... I don't know. There's something... I don't... Like, it's intentional, like, the way he speaks and, like, you know... He's the, off. Yeah, there's just something off. So, like, you know... To say he's probably on the spectrum in some capacity is like, you know, a lot of people are, but me included, probably. My thing to that is 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 he is that a thing of it being more intentional and a, a, a mental deficiency, or is that psychological? To me, I think he is psychologically unhinged, but he's too in control of his like fine motor skills and his emotions under like duress and weird situations to me to read autistic. To me, it is that character of, of being caught in between a dream and somewhere in reality, more so than like actual mental um mental handicap. Yeah. I, I I see it as more like a social autism thing like with Um, with how he interacts with irene like yeah like i would say that's like really the only capacity in which because like i agree like his emotions and in states of duress he handles everything perfectly really you know like he's really in control um but i just think socially like he's so socially awkward to the point where it's like i don't know that's that's what i think but 
Oh, it's an interesting read. On the, I think he's on the spectrum to some extent, and I think it is definitely the social stuff where even when he cries over Shannon, you get the sense that like they're very father and son. But when he talks to Shannon, they don't really say anything towards each other. It is a very like nonverbal character. I mean, the fact he has 800 words said in this entire movie tells you that this person doesn't really like to talk. They don't like people. So maybe it's more an antisocial behavior sort of thing, <laughs> which does literally manifest itself in, in murderous fits of rage. But I, I do think he's somewhere either on the spectrum because like his fascination is fixation on the cars where like when, when standards home and that party happens, what is driver doing? He's working on a car engine just by himself in the dark. Like that could speak to the fact he's still alone. He has no friends, but it could also be like, he's just fixated on these things. Then he, he keeps working and working and tooling on them. I just think he wouldn't have, again, we can read that as obsession or we can read it as, you know, him being maybe mentally handicapped. But, like, I don't think he would have the same obsession or love for Irene and Benicio if he was autistic. I don't think he would go to those same lengths to try and get them. Because he's in pursuit of wanting them. That's true. That's true. Uh, Nick, what you wanted to know earlier is why do incels like this movie? What are they? Devin, let's hear it. You, you were ready earlier. I, I, your cannon's been a little loosened up. Let's go off on the incels. Let's talk about this. All right. So um, this kind of <laughs> this kind of welcome plays my in, TED talk. I mean, this kind of plays into what we were just talking about, and not so much like the autism aspect, but like that loneliness thing, where like you know we're talking about the scene of him like alone, like working on this engine while there's a party next door. Um, I feel like you know th this would require like the breakdown of like okay, like. The, the people that are incels, right, are probably inside a lot. They, you know, and, and that's obviously this appeals to more than incels. It's just like, I think this this whole meme appeals to like people who, yeah, they're inside a lot, right? They're, it's probably like they live in a busy area or maybe it's just like a lonely, they, they feel alone. They could find themselves, you know, in relationships and stuff. Yeah, the, the type of person that like, I feel like watches a lot of movies and would have seen this movie in particular, right? Because, you know, we've already established that it's like, you know, people that like movies have seen this movie. I think there's a certain subgroup of people that really like movies that are also like, you know, if you sit inside all the time, like you probably watch movies. Like that's just something people do. And I think that also goes through the driving part of this where, I mean, Everyone does it, but like being in your car, listening to this music where you're like, this is me. And like everyone can relate to that feeling, whether you're, you know, inside a lot or not. There's that sense of like, sense like a relatableness to driver that I feel like you don't get with some other action heroes. And that's why it kind of appeals to him. But more back to the incels thing, what really strikes it to me on this watch was that, you know, obviously there's the aesthetic and the neon lights. And I'm sure. Incels have keyboards which are shining and flashing and all these fun colors of like, ooh, pink. Um, <laughs> but I think the narrative kind of reinforces this just as much as the aesthetic where, you know, Irene and Driver don't break up because she sees him for who she is by himself. They break up because someone else forces him to unveil himself for who he is. If not for Nino, Irene is probably blissfully ignorant of who Driver is and like the level of violence he can't commit. Yeah. As far as she's concerned, if anything, he's just the driver. He's just the getaway driver. She's a no, like, he'll grab a shotgun from someone, take a bullet, and shoot them, <laughs> you know? 
So by positioning it by someone else's fault as to why him and Irene fall apart, it denies, you know, Irene the accountability of what she can view him as. And there's a thing that incels love to do of like, well, I'm I'm alone because whatever this. Well, it's it's always someone else's fault. It's not like yeah yeah. Um, if she, and you can also say of like, well, Irene doesn't love him. That's on her then. Like she's not with him because she doesn't love him enough. She can't look past this. And he saved her life. Yeah, there's a way to shift external focus. But that's a dog <laughs> take because that's not what really happens. It is. <laughs> Because the character leaves because he can't change. He doesn't leave by the fault of anybody else. He leaves because he knows he's no good for anybody in that in that capacity. The only capacity he's good for is driving. So I don't well, really understand that read. I think there. I think there's two reads to this movie, and I think there's the read where you get you you, t- you walk away from this and you're like, wow, like driver, yeah, like he's not really a great guy. Like I guess he tried to do good, but like at the end of the day, like he's just. He does heinous acts. And then there's the other take where it's like he tried his best. <laughs> like, you know, like he was he did have pure intentions. Jeez. I think the thing you have to understand, Nick, is incels are people who want to blame it on someone else. Like it's they don't want to blame it because the driver is wrong or violent. They want to blame it because someone else made him violent. So it's inherently a bad take to begin with. But this is why they think they have it, honestly. I uh I guess I uh I'm happy. Not that an I'm incel. Made- Congratulations. I mean, it. yeah, it's like uh, there's so many memes with Christian Bale and American Psycho and like always yeah. driver from drive and then like, yeah, taxi driver guy I'm trying to think of who else. Joker. Well, um, Joker. Oh, yeah. This is the stair scene, baby. Just love it. Love that. And then freshman year of college, everyone busts into that. I've also noticed that on like you have those guys and then you have the dude from 500 Days of Summer that's also thrown in there sometimes. Sad thing. The sad thing is to that is there is a beauty to capturing loneliness. There is a relatability to capturing loneliness. There's a poignancy to capturing loneliness that is inherently that can inherently become your own. You can it can become something that is so relatable and so powerful that you can see it in yourself. But there's a fine line that you must separate between yourself and a fictional character, right? Like, yes. have I felt super depressed before and sad and alone like Travis Bickle? 100%. Have I ever bought, like, a forty-five revolver and thought about sa- assassinating <laughs> a governor or anything like that? Absolutely not. So it's just – I guess there's a disconnect that I just will never understand. So I was just going to joke. I might just clip out you saying absolutely not, just leave an absolutely <laughs> They're, they're, yeah, like we you know, we've all probably been like sad and depressed at some point. And then with these characters, you know, they take it that extra step. But there are people in real life that also take that extra step where they do. Like, uh, Mark David Chapman, yeah, like they hit that super low list. and then they do that. Yeah. Well, back to, to Driver. Yeah. So why do you guys feel like you're compelled by Driver? Like, what makes you feel he's such a unique kind of protagonist in some ways? Or why are we who aren't incels, by the way, not? Not us, not these three cats. We're, we're cool. not incels, guys. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Why do you feel like we relate to Driver? Mm, I mean, I think kind of like what we were just talking about. I know, like, probably when I first watched this, I might have been in like a like a more depressed mental state than before. So you do get that, like, oh, like I can relate to that aspect. Mm. I think now, I think what I get from this is like there aren't a lot of movies where. I feel like recently movies with the anti-hero handle it less gracefully than they do in this movie, I guess. I was 
I, I 100% agree with what Devin just said. We were jaded back then. We didn't we didn't know how good we had it. Yeah. Because because now these suck. <laughs> now now one of these a year works. But back then we got we got like the creme de la creme. I think that's why it endures for me, and it's an entertaining watch. Yep. What appealed to me about Driver this time around, and why I started to think about it more, is that he is something that I don't think a lot of action heroes kind of have, if that's what we're even classifying him as, or these other characters that are in the line of the anti-hero, is he has a sensitivity that I don't think any of these other guys, and not just that, but like he's not cracking one-liners, he takes no enjoyment in anything he does, he has no friends, his life is probably a commute to Shannon's, a commute back to the apartment and then the crime stuff in between. He's just alone in the truest sense. And there's like a sadness and a kindness that shine through in driver that I don't think really get with a lot of other action movies. And that's why we can identify with him. You know, like I want to root for him to be with Irene because we understand that she's more important to him than money. And going back to heat, Neil has Edie and he's got that life ahead of him, but he can't put that aside for his vendetta and his crime and his wanting to get revenge on Wayne grow. But we get the sense the driver absolutely would just drive home with Irene and be like, that's it. That's all I want. We, you know, get that. I think so. I think would it last? Probably not. Cause I think eventually his past runs up with him and catches up with him. But I think he's more interested in that than he is any of the crime parts of his life. Just real quick. Do you guys know the fable, how that goes for the scorpion, and the frog? Yes. We'll talk about that later too. Okay. I'll just say it's in his nature. Uh, moving on, should Ryan Gosling be nominated for Best Actor for this movie? Do you guys feel? Nah, nah, nah. I think that's. It was bad. a weak category, so I think you could have made a case, but probably not. I think he does a lot of great nonverbal stuff, but it's because of that where I don't think you can give it to him. I just, I, I don't think he gets in. Yeah, you know who won't be getting in this year? Colonel Tom <laughs> Parker, Tom Hanks for Colonel Tom Parker. <laughs> what a what a transition! You're lighting them on fire today. Wow, just great stuff. Colonel Tom Parker Award, uh, award to the most an oddest acting decision, like like being Tom Hanks and then all of a sudden going like, yeah, something will make me be the villain of this here story, despite the fact the real person doesn't sound like that. There's no basis for it, Tom Hanks, but okay, do you. Uh, our four candidates this week that I have so far, I want I want to have some other people weigh in here. We have Irene. We, we could talk about her as well in this category. Blanche, Cook, and Ron Perlman. Anyone I want to add anyone? I want to. I want to add Albert Brooks as Bernie. Okay, I'm willing yeah. to accept that, Devin. for all the right reasons. No, I think I think that's kind of everyone I could think of. You know. Okay. Although I will Go say, on. just coming off of the bench, hitting a, a a grand slam out of the park is the guy who plays the 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 person that Standard owes the money oh, to. Yeah, yeah cook. cook. Thank you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, it, oh, it is Cook. I apologize. Yeah, he's yes. great in that sequence too when he looks at Blanche. He's like, what the fuck are you smiling about? Go take her with you and go get a Coke. Like, he's just so great in that. And how he slowly takes the time to write fuck off on his hand and explain to Driver how everybody else's breakdown for the money of the heist is going to go is just excellent stuff. So let's go through it. So Irene is our first candidate. I think she's not going to get I think she's miscast. She's not bad in this movie. But I think this is a good talk to sidebar and talk about kind of the problematic writing of her character in general. Um, he really has no character, I felt, on this rewatch. She's just something for Driver to chase and want. And, you know, that's not great and ideal, and, and Nicholas Winding Refn kind of pooped the bed on that front. 
So I don't know. Does that you know, talk about this? Yes. He's not a great female character writer, and he's also tried to make a movie starring three females, and it just like didn't work well. And um, too old to die young. Yeah, a man writing a movie about women, but uh, too old to <laughs> die young has some really problematic female stuff in it too, where it's just doesn't really work, even in the sense of them being empowered in some of the roles, where it's just. I don't know. Uh, I I don't think he has a firm grasp on how to write female characters, which is which is like I know it's super simple to boil it down and be like, well, that's because he's a man. But like we talked about Jackie Brown a couple weeks ago, and that was written by Quentin Tarantino, and that's one of my favorite female performances of all time. Yes, I I just think he doesn't know how to handle. I mean, look, the book doesn't handle Irene or Irina well at all either. She's more or less just like filling in gaps of like driver's upset because someone died in, in the book's case and in this movie version it's just like he's upset that he can't have her and that's what it boils down to and it's and it's really unfortunate that like you couldn't do more with this woman who's like caught in this marriage with a man she doesn't really love but then her other option is another crazy person and she's a single mother in LA let's, let's all be honest here though would you have cared have watched five to ten minutes of that in this movie and i'm not saying that from a misogynistic standpoint i'm talking about literally like the ergonomic sense of making a movie and telling a story need that in the movie i don't know if we needed five minutes of irene at like the diner being like would you like your coffee refilled sir uh probably just would have dragged it down but it is just ignored so grossly that it is kind of just worth mentioning here but i agree Yeah. yeah yeah Moving on, Blanche. I think this is one of the contenders here, the strong contender. Nick, you're smiling. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really think Blanche is that bad. I feel bad for Blanche in this movie, to be honest. Every oh, yeah, single she gets her head blown off, dude. Well, every single person is so derogatory towards towards her <laughs> to the point she literally gets slapped in the face by our main character, which is another yeah. moment in the movie, which is uh, like 60 minutes in where he completely turns and you're like, okay, like not only does this guy have rage and menace underneath him? I don't really know if I like him anymore. I think Blanche and Devin, I think you might agree with me. It wouldn't surprise you guys to find out that Nicholas Winding Refn wanted to cast a porno actress to play Blanche, but he couldn't find anyone to actually meet the role, so he cast uh, Christina Hendricks. But I feel like she's very one note. She doesn't have a lot to do either, which is, again speaks to the problematic woman character. But she's just like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like a sad. She's kind of one note. She doesn't really bring much to it. I feel like Blanche is a role where, like, you get five minutes. You can maybe pop off maybe, like, one or two threes. And Blanche is kind of like, eh, she doesn't really do much with it. She does the exact opposite of what Brian Cranston does. I mean, a lot of his dialogue is heavy lifting and exposition and moving the plot forward. But he completely embodies that and turns Shannon into a character. Yes. You know, when he's sitting at the diner and he says, how's the leg Ron Perlman he's like I paid my debt like there's so much to that line to unpack like you could get a whole 10 episode show of Shannon like about like how he got his leg broken like that's what <laughs> I'm saying is like, they're, they're both in a similar boat where their main function is to move the story along and a lot of their dialogue is exposition but like one does an incredible job with it and also has a lot more meat and potatoes but yes. the other just kind of like is by the numbers yeah we call that show walk I drive <laughs> <laughs> we call him Walker White too. Just, just that's his real name. So. Oh. Uh, for Blanche, is that what you're asking? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, th- I don't think she wins the award. I mean, like, because you yeah. said that while we were watching, and I was like, like, yeah, like, haha, like, but like, 
eh, compared to Cook or, you know, yes. I don't know. I think she's pretty good when she, once he in that scene when she gets slapped. She's pretty fantastic in that scene. Like she's, she's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, moving on to Cook, like Devin mentioned, Nick, you're on the Cook train. You, it's like him and Patrice, and a couple other <laughs> characters that we love. But well, I, I I do a poor job of remembering names with the movies. I got to do a better job with remembering character names. But yeah, Cook in like Albert Brooks are in as Bernie are in a dead heat for me. I almost want to give it to Albert Brooks, Albert Brooks, just for the pure way that he kills Shannon. I almost want to do it just because he shaved his eyebrows, just for the role, just because he wanted to. But just the way he like looks at Shannon after he slits his wrist, and he's just like, "It's okay, it's over. There's no pain." It's just like <laughs> it's it's so bizarre and weird. And then we get a shot like that probably didn't need to be in the movie of him sitting down and putting the blade back into his knife collection, which adds. <laughs> Eccentric serial killer, like mystical vibe to Bernie. I'm just like, yes, give me, give me this all day. This guy's, this guy's Colonel Tom Parker. <laughs> Rock Perlman, I think, is maybe like a sneaky contender here, where he's like, yes. I pinch my cheeks like I'm five, and it's like, Ron, like let's just ease it a little bit. I agree. Yeah. He does kind of stink there. I thought that this morning when I watched yeah. it. <laughs> Devin, who's your nominee? Uh, I don't know. I mean. I didn't think Bernie initially, but like, yeah, like in retrospect, make some choices. Yeah, he makes some choices that are really funny. I think I'd have to go with Bernie. Okay, we're gonna give it to Bernie this week. Yeah, like in like a yes. great way, in a great way. Yes. Okay. Next big question. This is something that I floated last week at the end of the show. Is Drive one of the most influential movies of the 2010s? So I, to ease our 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 little understanding here, I separated it into two categories here. We've got 2010 movies that easily surpass Drive's influence. We have The Avengers, The Force Awakens, Get Out, Fury Road, Lady Bird. Feel free to disagree or add on anything when I'm done. The Social Network, Moonlight, and Wolf of Wall Street. Any others we want to add there that, that are more important or more influential than Drive that I missed? From the 2010s? 2010s, yes. Oh, on retrospect, I... You know, the first two are tough because you can't take them out because they're just uh, it's the way that the industry is gone. I would take out Fury. I'd take out Fury Road and put it okay. in here over Fury Road. I will. I'll throw in Joker. I want to say that's 2019. I feel like Joker is also a very influential movie for all the wrong reasons. But still, Devin, anything you, you agree or disagree with? No, I mean, well, what's interesting is it's like I feel like Joker almost can't exist without this movie in some ways. That is true. Which is a great pivot point to mm-hmm. movies that oh drive something big or small. I had a John Wick for like the color palette, the very neon, like ultra violent sort of stuff. The guest, which I love, which is feels very much inspired by Drive. I, I I I got one swear, but I got I got two middle fingers right here for you. <laughs> I love that. Uh we got Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which I think Drive is Gosling's audition for that movie. We have Nightcrawler, we have Joker, like Devin mentioned, and Baby Driver. And that's not to mention the fact that Drive gives life to Oscar Isaac's career and revives Ryan Gosling's career. And I also want to shout out Hotline Miami 1 and 2, just for you, Devin. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, Fun games. They, they were heavily inspired by Drive. That's what they said. Yes, they were. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get back to the question here. Is this one of the more influential movies of the 2010s? And I'm not saying like top 10. We're like just like top 20, top 25 to you guys. 100 percent. i mean it's, it's probably top 10 wow 
I'm not saying in the sense of like, do I, I would have to have a list in front of me to be like, this is one of the top 10 movies of 2010. But if you're talking about influence, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd have to agree. I mean, like, I don't, I can't think of anything that, I mean, I'm kind of partial because I really like this movie, right? But like, I can't really think of anything else, so. Now, Nick, I, I agree with you both, I think. Why do you, what do you feel like it influenced, not just like in terms of movie, but what do you think it did for the culture while we're here? Oh, I, I just think that it was one of the first movies to make that good a sense of my main character can do bad things. I can still have an audience that wants him to succeed at the end. And that's not a new trick. That's an old hat. But it was something that I felt during this time period was reserved for television, whether it be Breaking Bad, Mad Men, The Sopranos, stuff like that, that was kind of challenging the psyche of where we were at in America at that time frame. I feel like this is kind of the same thing where, you know, a lot of the movies that came out in the in the mid to late 2010s or 20 aughts, whatever the hell it was we just got out of, to me felt a little sanitized. They felt like they were dealing sometimes with the material in, in a sense with kid gloves. And we talked about last week with Monsters, Inc., how, you know, after 9-11 happened, there was a really big shift in the sense of how we approached movies and the sense of unity was brief and then converted into cynicism and that was kind of reflected in our art and i think that this is kind of one of those same things where we kind of repeat ourselves in a cycle where you know we're in the second term and obama administration and stuff like that is going to start up where there's like a lot more turmoil and there's a lot more anger and the hope and the optimism has kind of faded away a little bit like we're a little jaded to where we're at as a country so yeah, I think it's kind of one of it's a little bit of that where it's a great reflection of where we were at in the world. And I also think that it was important for us to understand that our characters can be complex. We don't need to rely on all of our narratives where we're being force-fed this is good, this is bad. You're not sacrificing like moral goodness with entertainment. I feel like with drive. Exactly. And I think that that's something too where it it's important to have those movies. When I'm writing, personally, and Josh, you might feel the same way, you might feel different, I think it is now a burden when I put moral, when I when I erase moral ambiguity for my character. That's me commenting on my character, instead of my character commenting on the things that I'm trying to say. Right. It's it's hard to, to pin down why it feels, like, so influential. I mean, I think you brought up a lot of good points, Nick, but, like... It's it's strange because it feels like a movie we've now seen like a lot of times, you know. So it's mm-hmm. it's hard to talk about it in that kind of aspect. But I think the internet too is another thing that like and I don't want to be the only one talking on the cast here, but like the thing of the internet too is another key piece to this movie. Is like we talked about how movies would have a DVD shelf life where they would be you know still quite culturally relevant or vhs run whatever it may be or a re-release well that's the internet now this movie has lived on whether it be in memes and the soundtrack with people walking in with their own jacket and you know you guys know more about this than i do in the quote-unquote literally me like tiktoks and things like that like (laughs) this movie owes almost like a a second shelf life to the internet in some regards which is kind of a oh absolutely a positive and a negative, I guess, however you want to look at it. 
I also think Drive is kind of our generation's taxi driver in some ways because it embodies the Travis Bickle energy of the unhinged, but like good guy who's not a good guy, but we want to root for him anyways. We want him to do good, but he never will. Um, and I don't think it's as good as Taxi Driver. I don't think it has as much to say exactly about human beings. But I do think there is that sense of everyone can relate to Drive from the the incels to the innocent good people like us and <laughs> even the bad people. I think there's something for everyone with Drive. And I think it's signaled to the you know the media industry that like, hey, dark neon neo-noirs are back. And that's been one of the things that have kind of carried this last decade of film. I agree totally. Yeah. And like I had a point too and I just lost it. It was something that you just said. Let's I've go. got a point. I've got a point that go I ahead, Devin. I, yeah. I know we mentioned this off air too, but uh like I think this is a movie and I feel like there aren't a lot like this, but like where style over substance is a like it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know? Mm. Like this is a very stylish movie and they give you just enough where you have to use your mind to kind of fill in a lot of the gaps, but like, that's what makes it fun. And that, like, I've always been drawn to media like that. That's a great point. One of the big notes that I wrote down is just like camera tells the story with this movie because we have so little exposition that when we get it, it is kind of obvious, but for the most part, it's showing you these things with the camera of like, where, what are we looking at here? We're seeing the plans. We're seeing driver on the phone. We're seeing him back turn. We're seeing, all these things of how meticulous he is. He's got the stopwatch, which tells you he's a professional. And this is kind of right over the influential talk, but like this movie is very meticulous and leaves a lot to the ambiguity, which is kind of what we demonstrated here today. And what I want to continue with, which is the next question before we get into like the last question of the show is driver, the frog or the scorpion to you two. Mm. Oh, I think, I think we need to start with like a little like back. The fable. Backlog. Yeah. And it's pretty brief. I can I can give an abri- abbreviated version real quick. Hit me, boy. Hit me. Okay. It's it's a it's a day after a long storm, and there's a big river that's been flooded. Well, there's a frog at the river bank, and the scorpion wanders over, and he realizes that this river bank is now too high for him to get across. The rocks he used have been flooded over. Well, he sees the frog, and the frog sees him, and they exchange. A glance. He says to the frog, Hey, let me get on your back to get across the river. The frog says, Hey, help you get across the river. Don't can sting me because then we're both going to die and we're going to drown. Scorpion says, I won't. We're, we're, we're good, dude. Like, we're on the same page. We're going to get across the river. So the scorpion gets onto the frog's back and they start to paddle out and they're about halfway through the river. The scorpion stings the frog. As the frog's body starts to shut down, the frog looks up at the scorpion and says, Why the f*** did you sting me? The scorpion says, Sorry. In my nature. And they both drown and die. Yeah. I want to have a little section of, like, you reading fables now, but just, like, throwing in some, like, casual lingo. Just be like, Rapunzel's hair wouldn't stop growing. (laughs) Like, drunk history. Yes, but back to the point. Devin, I want to hear you first, as you've probably watched this more than any of us. And maybe this is a question you don't really think about all the time, but who do you think Driver is in this situation? I think it's really as simple as he thinks he's the frog, but, you know, I mean, he's literally wearing the... He's the scorpion. He, he's literally wearing the jacket. Like, I think it's I think it's that simple, you know? 
but that's extremely elegant and like punctuated. I don't have anything to add to it, really. Okay. Because I have I have a page and a half on both opinions. <laughs> wow. Well, I think I mean, <laughs> what? I mean unload. Well, oh, no, I like combined, combined, I should say, but yes. Oh, I was gonna say. Yes. I I think Devin's one hundred percent right. I think the fact that he is wearing the jacket almost as if it is a shell. And it's almost like some protectant could could argue that he is the frog. All of the actions that he portrays throughout the movie tell us that he is the scorpion. And especially that Albert Brooks alludes to this whole entire fable with one of his last lines in the movie. Yeah. Yes. So I'll give you just my quick hit notes on each of them because I do think there's an argument for both of them and then what I kind of came down to. Uh, you guys have mentioned the jacket, obviously important it signifies he's a scorpion but where's the jacket it's on his back the scorpion is on his back just like the frog but i think you could also see that like um driver almost exclusively wears a jacket when he's committing crimes but the exception of that is when he's with benicio and irene he's the frog in this scenario because we could use this as a, the driver is taking the scorpion crime across the river he's trying to have both of these things and he's like look i know you're there i know you're on my back but don't stab me i'm trying to cross this river of happiness just leave me be. Don't sting me, and I'll be okay. But he's still carrying that scorpion with him the whole time. I mean, think about it. The, the frog is essentially driving the scorpion over the river, and then gets stung, just like how driver drives the criminals around. So driver can, you know, try to accept love, but unlike it, crime never changes. Its nature is blood and death; it always will be. And he's just the frog caught in the middle of it. So thoughts on that, I guess, before we go on to the next part. I think you bring up a really good point with the thing with the jacket on the back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, ultimately, I do agree with you guys, which is kind of a shame because I wanted some like little Skip Bayless, Shannon Sharp, you know, disagreement here. I think Driver is a scorpion. Um, I think Devin probably puts it best, and that's where I ultimately came down with my conclusion. But I think he's the scorpion more than not, because like the scorpion, Driver wants to change. He wants to believe that he won't sting. And that he's okay and he'll make it through. He wants to and makes a promise, even if it's to himself, that he can cross over that ruin his true nature. But he kind of does. You know, and I think nothing symbolizes that more than the elevator scene where before we get to that, we kind of have to establish that, you know, like I said, he always wears a scorpion jacket when he's committing crimes. But there is an exception to that. It's when he's carrying Benicio back to the apartment after they do whatever they're doing that day. We actually don't see the scorpion on the jacket. We just see it around Benicio's shoulders. The camera can't see it. It's almost like Driver's hiding it. He's trying to disguise this jacket as like this good deed of like, look, I'm using this as a blanket. It's not for crimes. It's to help this little kid kind of fall asleep on my shoulder. But he's trying to change his function just like the scorpion and who he is, but he can't. And it's during the elevator scene, we see him wearing the jacket again with Irene. Only this time we can consistently see the scorpion on the back of his jacket. It's it's there when he walks in the elevator. It's there when he's kissing Irene. And all this sort of stuff. But more importantly, when he goes to actually bash in the assassin's face, all Irene can see, because she's in the corner, is the scorpion. She is seeing him literally use his stinger. And, you know, what's more, like I said, is that Driver had the assassin incapacitated when he just slams his head against the elevator door. But he keeps going. He really pummels this dude's face so there's nothing left. And that was, you know, that's the that's revealing his true nature is that he just has such a rage and violence in him that even though he tried to keep his promise to himself, he can't sheath his stinger. It's not who he is. He is the scorpion, and he can't change. 100%. And the symbolism in the sound is so goddamn great how it's almost 
it's almost like they shot the sound in like 60 frames per second, which is what you usually shoot for slow motion. Here we go, talking about stuff nobody cares about. But like the, the sound is slow, so slowed down that when those doors close, it's the closing of any chance of a normal life. It's like, okay, well, now I've, my hands are completely washed. Like, how can I even begin to even let you around my child? No, let alone into my life in any intimate way. Yeah. And not to mention the fact that she just watched her husband slash boyfriend, whatever you want to call standard, to violence. And now here's this man that is willing to commit it so readily. Yep. Um, Devin, any closing thoughts on that before we move on to the final question? I think, uh, I mean, what I was thinking about while you were talking is like, it's kind of like, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, like, and I think they, you know, with that scene where he's talking to Benicio and he, with the good shark, bad shark sort of deal, like, yes, it doesn't really matter if he's the scorpion or the frog because, like, it seems like he's taking both, like, he kind of wears each one depending on the situation. But at the end of the day, because of that, like, he's doing both things, like, he dies, you know, like, or like, quote unquote, like, he's, yes. he gets stung or he is the one stinging, like, it doesn't really matter, like, and I think this movie kind of wants you to not really have a firm opinion on either because we can't tell who he is because just like the shark conversation, there's a good shark, there's a bad shark. What does it matter? They're all just sharks, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and Devin, this is the final thing I want to ask you because you asked me when we finished watching the movie. What do you think this movie's trying to say? What is its main theme? What is it trying to leave the audience with? <laughs> it's funny you asked me that because after I asked you that, I've been thinking about it and I still like... I don't know. I struggled to like come up with a real answer to that. I I would say it's yeah. I don't know. It's like Nick. What what do you think? Oh, man, I I went <laughs> not to get like too deep into personal stuff, but like I watched this movie this morning. Went and did a bunch of stuff, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I've seen this movie close to 20 times probably at this point like and it's one of those movies that's always just kind of gets chewed around afterwards i just always go back to like the rudimentary nature of how Refn approaches human behavior and how human nature and change is impossible and <laughs> he's kind of reminds me almost like a cormac mccarthy in the sense like a lot of his stuff is very cynical he doesn't really give his characters like a lot of uh praise or a way out so to me it's it's kind of about the inevitable nature of how we cannot change our like human programming yeah i think that's kind of what we ended up kind of agreeing with after we watched it too where we were like it just seems like <laughs> it's like if if you're this way you're, you're that's kind of it for you fortunately i think this movie should have said you reap what you sow you can be driver, you can want all these things, but so long as you're affiliated with these crimes, even if you're just the getaway driver, you things cannot coexist. Yeah, they cannot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can't be the scorpion and the frog because you're going to get stung either way. You're going to drown. Yeah. So best, best luck trying. Uh, one last thing real quick I'd like to hit about that we didn't talk about was Brian Cranston. I would just kind of like to talk about him in general. To me, he's somebody who suffers from the disadvantage of becoming famous later in life. Uh, I feel like the era for all of his parts that are like meat and potatoes is kind of past. 
Um, I enjoy Godzilla, but like I want Brian Cranston to be doing more stuff like Trumbo, which along with Half Nelson has got to be one of the least viewed best actor performances of the past 30 years. That is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I just really think he's a great actor and I really appreciate all the work that he did in this movie in the sense of like, it would have been a super easy mail-in job, but he committed to this role and made it something that's so much more unique and deep. Um, yeah, I just hope he's somebody who continues to get work, but same thing, Josh, you know, you and I talked about Daniel Craig and Daniel Craig's 54 years old. What's the world like for a 54 Daniel Craig that isn't in a James Bond movie every three years? What's the world for Brian Cranston? (laughs) Yeah. What's the world for Brian Cranston in his sixties when he's not in breaking bad anymore? I don't know what that is. And I know we're kind of rapping here, but yeah, I just wanted to give him props as just being an incredible actor, like across both mediums. This is something we kind of talked about where I think we can both agree, all three of us, John Carl Esposito, that's how it's actually pronounced, I found out this week. He's had the best career since Breaking Bad. Would we all agree on that? Yeah. Not as good of a variety, but I think he's done the most amount of interesting work, I would yeah. say. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't necessarily know. I think he might be the one, him and, well, I mean, Cranston's obviously making a bunch of scratch yes. too, but he's he's maintained his his bag. I'll put it there. Yes, as his Gus bag. Um, I'm not sure Far, Far Cry Six <laughs> is a is a really big creative push <laughs> for him, but well, yeah, he's still out here. Hey, Nacho comes from Far Cry Saga too, boy. Just wait, wait, wait. Remember that. Do you think Brian Cranston could be in Far Cry Seven? Oh, damn. Let's just get them all going. Let's get like, well, you got oh, I'm an NPC in Far Cry Seven. What can I get you today? My name is Mike Ermintrout. I would love it if Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Like better call Saul alum all end up as Far Cry villains, you know? Wow, be great. Ray Seahorn would crush it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think you make a good point, Nick. And this is something Devin and I talked about, like I said. But is this what you kind of envision for Brian Cranston after Breaking Bad? Because he is so dynamite in that show, and yet I would say the only great roles he's had, kind of sense of during Breaking Bad, is is Drive, Trumbo, which he's nominated for, The Infiltrator, kind of arguably. And this new TV show he's doing called Your Honor, where I'm like, I mean, he's like a movie going straight to Paramount Plus now, and Jerry and Marge go large. And this is Walter White. Like, I, I don't know. You didn't like Godzilla? Yeah, I did, but he's like in 20 minutes. Yeah, he's he's got about 25 minutes of screen time. He's probably the best acting part of that movie, but like, that's not what I'm going to see Godzilla for. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to kind of give him a shout out and and we can leave the show off like that or we can move this around and you can put it somewhere differently. But I just have one more question before we end this and I'll, I'll, I'll bring this up here. Uh, what is the future of Nicholas Wine and Refn? We kind of talked about it earlier, Nick, but I think there's another th- way to look at it. Is his last two things about TV shows, is that an area where he should stay? Is that where you think he will stay? Is there even a place in the movie media for Nicholas Wine and Reference to make a new movie every three to four years? Um, As one of the four people who watched Only God Forgives, we established that earlier. <laughs> too old to die young, but yeah, sure. One, of the, one of the 18 people to see Only God Forgives. <laughs> yeah, my apologies. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it was hard for him to get funding to make project like i talked about earlier when we got into the show it was hard for him to get funding to make only god forgives he sold a soul to get that made it's just in a world where it's already becoming increasingly harder to make movies i don't don't know where he operates um i can tell you that tv it might not be the best medium um 
as far as the reviews for Too Old to Die Young. You know what I mean? I enjoyed it. it I enjoyed it for yeah. for a project of Nicholas Winding Refn quality, but nobody's going to pay twelve fifty to go see that for two and a half hours in a movie theater unless you're at Honor Tiff. So that's kind of where I think he's stuck unless he decides to make a uh, pink and neon Marvel, Marvel movie or DC movie. Drive 2. Drive 2. <laughs> Driven. 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 Ooh. Okay. That is the actual second book of the, in the series, Nick. It's, it's just called Driven. So tough, nice. tough look for James Ellis. He should Seven, be any final words? Oh, that's genius. Um, <laughs> any final words on Drive? Well, uh, movie's pretty good. Uh, I'm just going to add it there. That's it. Yeah. Road, dogs out. <laughs> road Dog's out. 